When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Born and raised near Lubbock, Texas, Ross Cooper began his adulthood as a professional rodeo rider before a knee injury ended his career prematurely. He drew upon these experiences of life in Lubbock and on the rodeo circuit in crafting his third album, Chasing Old Highs. This is a follow-up to his albums I Rode the Wild Horses and I Give It Time. Named by Rolling Stone one of the 10 new country artists you should know, Ross combines classic Western themes with a modern alternative indie sound to create ear-pleasing songs. A rising star on the Nashville songwriting scene, his songs have been cut by other rising performers, Randy Rogers, Wade Bowen, and William Clark Green. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and I am really, really excited to have this guest. Part of the joy of doing this podcast is I get introduced to new music and new artists, and I hope that you, my listeners, also enjoy meeting new artists. And today, I have the special opportunity to introduce you, hopefully, or if you're already a fan to really get to know Ross Cooper. Ross, welcome to our show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Ross, you have, is it your third studio album out and it's called Chasing Old Highs? Yeah, that's correct. You know, there's some stuff that even if you were to do a deep dive on the internet, you couldn't find, you know, that I put out when I was younger, but this is my third studio album. So Ross, you grew up in Lubbock, Texas and were a rodeo rider. I saw in your bio that you got a scholarship to college to ride rodeo. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. You know, it's pretty common. There's a lot of those uh, smaller schools, whether they be community colleges or JUCOs or whatever, that offer really good scholarships because a lot of those smaller schools have rodeo teams. Most of those smaller schools that have a good rodeo program are, are rock solid and the bigger schools are opposite, you know. I went to South Plains College for a year and I uh, was in the music program and I was on the rodeo team. I had a rodeo scholarship and a music scholarship. And then I transferred to Texas A&M and there was, you know, almost no scholarship money. It wasn't a part of the athletic program. We had a team and a really great rodeo coach who 
in hindsight, probably sunk a lot of his own person, you know, out of pocket money into the program. But the smaller schools that can acquire some of that funding, it allows an opportunity for a lot of people to go to college that otherwise wouldn't. You know, there were some guys on our team from Canada and some guys in our region from Australia, and it, it's that kind of perfect avenue for people to that allow people to come over and get an education and rodeo. And when you're college rodeo and you can also pro rodeo too. So the association isn't NCAA, it's NRA. So they allow you to pro rodeo and college rodeo as well. So I know that's in some of your songs that we're going to talk about, but I found that fascinating. And I also found it fascinating that your mother was a musician. So I guess she may have helped get you into music. And when did you start writing songs and why did you start writing songs? Her and I wrote a song together. It was the first song I ever wrote when I was 10. And it was a little uh, gospel song. She always played piano and she still can. She can read music. She's a great pianist. I had the opportunity to start piano lessons right around nine or 10. Kind of looking back at that, you know, being 10, I wasn't good at piano and still really am not great at piano. But it's like I was one to learn enough of an instrument to write a song. Shortly after, around 12 or 13, I started taking guitar lessons, and then I started writing my first songs around 13 or 14. And they all sucked. <laughs> they, were all really, <laughs> they were all really bad. It was always encouraged. You know, both my mom and my dad were always like, always encouraging with music. Never made me feel like it was something that I shouldn't do or couldn't do. So. I realize how lucky I am and, and was to have had that because a lot of people don't. The first song we're going to talk about is Freewheeling Feeling. And I have to tell you, we've had Jack Temption, who wrote Peaceful, Easy Feeling on the show. And this song does kind of remind me of that notion of a song about feeling. Instead of peaceful, you're freewheeling. And your music has been described, and let me know if I'm wrong, as having similarities to the Eagles and J.D. Souther and the whole California sound that they 
sort of get some credit for creating in the early 1970s. And so I really kind of felt this song being inspired by Glenn Fry when I was listening to it. Is there anything to this or am I off the mark? No, you're not off the mark, but it's funny that you had mentioned J.D. Souther because he's from Amarillo, which is like two hours or an hour and a half north of Lubbock where I'm from. Amarillo, Texas is about as Texas as it can get. I met J.D. I was uh, my first job in Nashville. I was valeting cars and it was a gosh almighty talk about an awful thankless job you know i didn't really know who this guy was when he, he pulled up but it was like one of those things i felt like i ought to know him because he kind of he kind of spoke like and kind of talked like how i speak and talk you know there's definitely a west texas dialect but he pulled up on this damn rocket sled on rails you know this like little bmw and got out nice guy and I wrote down his last name and I asked for his last name for his claim ticket. And I was like, Oh, this is JD Souther, you know? And then I like started kind of talking with him and I was like, Hey, you know, I know you're from Amarillo. I'm from Lubbock and all this stuff. And so those songwriters though, what JD does really well and what Don Henley does really well and Glenn Fraud did really well is there's really interesting chord progressions and really honest lyrics. I wrote freewheeling feeling on the piano. It started really, really simple. And then when I got to the, chorus i wanted something it felt really basic it felt you know the meat of it the bones of it was was this really simple thing and then i started playing around with kind of slipping in some different progressions you know and and not progressions it's slipping in different chords into the progression and which on for me writing on piano kind of opens up my world a little bit i feel like you know guitar is my primary instrument but i'm kind of trapped sometimes in what you know when i pick up a guitar i'll I'll go to like one of three or four things because i'm only really ever working on lyrics. So when I sit down at a piano, I don't, I I always, I feel like I always write differently at piano, but the lyric and the mood behind that song is I worry about everything, man. Like I'm, you know, I'm never not anxious and I've been trying to learn in the last couple of years of like, just kind of, you know, trusting in the nebulous and in the unknown. And when you can't see, you know, kind of what tomorrow is going to be, it could be anything. And that can be a good thing, you know, instead of only kind of like, having that anxiety about this impending doom or whatever, just like trusting and that the fear of the unknown doesn't have to be this big fear. It can be, can be anything could happen. You know? There's this book out uh, that I'm going to read because I also feel these moments of never ending anxiety. I think we all do, especially during this pandemic. And I think it's called the anxiety loop written by a psychologist about how to break the cycle. Cause big part of it is you get stuck on something and, and you know what you're looking for, you're looking for a freewheeling feeling, but it's missing from the equation. But in it, he says, you need to focus on kindness and curiosity to break the loop. You have to be curious about something else than what's causing your anxiety. And, and then also to focus on expressing kindness. And so I've been trying to do that in my own life. Yeah, it's a, it's a true thing, that anxiety loop. It's like, for me, the minute that I think that I'm out of it and I think about the anxiety, then I'm right back into it. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'll have this moment throughout the day. I'm like, man, I felt pretty good today. I haven't thought about, you know, this hasn't been in the loop. And then all of a sudden it just hits that, that, that play button again, you know? I'll have to check that book out. But that feeling definitely like, for me, I write songs because I love to write songs. And... Of course, songwriting is cathartic. Absolutely. I think that that's probably the, the most common thread of writing songs, but I've dedicated so much of my life to it to where sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like, 
it's a problem that I have to solve. And with freewheeling feeling, it's kind of been this reminder to myself to like, in the simplest terms, like try not to sweat the small stuff. Like I will drive myself crazy. I have driven myself crazy with that type of stuff. And so, um, it was, uh, listening to what that piano demo is. And I hope to God that nobody ever hears it, um, because my piano playing is not great, but from where that song started to where it is now is almost kind of night and day to go back and answer the original question. I think how the melody lays over the chorus and kind of the sentiment of the song, you know, it's probably absolutely inspired by the Eagles and that kind of seventies, California stuff. All those, those songs were country songs. They were country songs with a little bit of swagger and a little bit more groove. That's all that, you know, you listen to early Eagle stuff like that's to me what it sounds like. That's kind of, I don't know how I would describe my music, but I know that it's inherently country and that I want to have something that, you know, has a little bit of a groove to it. And so that's what the Eagles did the best. And we layer harmonies too. Yeah. You have a lot of that Eagles harmonics, but you also have throughout the album, and I do want to talk about this. I think it's more distinctive on some of the other songs, but it is on this song. There are definitely multiple guitars and not just guitar players and styles, but actual guitars. And you made me think about like, what kind of guitar are they playing that's making that sound? And what, what kind of style is it a slide at, you know, is finger picking, is it flat picking? But you talk about this Gibson J 50 that was given to you, um, by a friend who gave that to you. And what's the story behind that? A friend of our family, one of my dad's friends, Bob, he passed away and I played guitar with him like once several years ago. And he had this beautiful 66 Gibson J 50. And for the people that aren't aware really out there of of what that guitar is for an amateur pick, Bob sold, he sold cars, you know, for a car salesman, that that's a hot rod. You know, it's a great guitar. It's a hot rod guitar. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a great acoustic guitar and it sounded so good. And there was yellow on the binding, you know, from years of cigarette smoke. And they just, Bob took care of that guitar though. So well, he took it out of that case and started picking on it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like, what is this guitar? I'd never seen it had a narrower neck, which is something that Gibson did in the sixties to try to inspire kids. Cause you know, the Beatles were all the rage. So they were trying to inspire kids to start taking guitar lessons, you know? So they built this little narrower neck on those, on those models and guitar just felt great. And he was a good picker too. And we just, we traded songs back and forth and we played together and that was kind of it, you know? And, and unfortunately he passed away about a year, probably a year or two after that. And my dad called me and, uh, um, I, I got word that he, he left, they, uh, his family left me that guitar. It was a big deal for a couple of different reasons. One, it's like, to me, I can't put into words what that gift is just the instrument by itself. It's the best instrument I have in my house. It's something that I will keep my whole life and the amount of songs that it's had in it and the amount of songs I've written on it in the last couple of years the places that I've, I've gotten to take it, you know, like I use that guitar in the studio, the cool shows in Nashville, you know, like the bluebird stuff. I always kind of think like anytime that there's a moment that I know that needs to be a moment that I kind of keep in the old filing cabinet, I always kind of think, man, Bob would have thought this was really cool because he never would have thought this guitar would have seen what it's seen. I feel proud to be able to give it more life because the guitar is better than I'll ever be. 
So I talk about sound on this show a lot, and I've really been challenged to find words to describe sound. How would you describe the sound of the Gibson J50 guitar? Uh, warm and honest, <laughs> you know? It's a full-bodied warm sound. It's not too dark. It's not too bright. For me, my road guitar, my road acoustic is a, a J45. It's on the darker side. I switched out the pickup in it. And it has a blend on it, so I can brighten it up a little bit. But it's a darker guitar than the, um, the J50 is. I do a lot of finger picking. What the J50 does for me that the J45 doesn't is when I'm finger picking on the J45, my like G and D string don't really have that resonance that the J50 does. It just doesn't you know vibrate completely through the guitar. And you don't feel it in the neck like you do on the J50. If I could clone the J50, well and the thing is about the J50, about the one that I have, is if I could just swap all my acoustics for that guitar, I would. I just don't want to pay, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to keep buying that guitar. I'm really scared to take it out on the road because I've been very, very fortunate and like nothing crazy about having like gear stolen. Or, and so I know that the minute that I take that guitar out is the minute it's going to get stolen. I have this, and that, that could be um, an irrational fear. My J45 sounds great. It plays really well. If that guitar gets stolen, it's I'll I can replace it. You know, the J50 I could replace that guitar, but I can't replace Bob having given it to me. That's a real love story to a, a musical instrument. It's like, you know, I know you might have other loved ones in your life, but it's a special relationship with your guitar. So I find that very touching. It's given me so much. Yeah. Why would I not? You know. Yeah, it doesn't talk back to you either. well it does talk back but only when you make it talk back (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) luckily my my close relationships are pretty incredible but how many like friend relationships or relationships that people have that are so one-sided it's like yeah i don't put a lot of stock in like really loving tangible things you know but that guitar is it's just it's different it's got a pretty special spot in my heart so freewheeling feeling, there's a hand, I love your lyrics throughout the album, but there's a handful of lyrics that really caught my eye. The chorus, just finding my meaning and going about it my own way. I really like that. I really like, will you talk about, so when my skin turns to leather and my heartbeat slows. I mean, that really captures. Oh, and here's one. We ain't searching for the finding. The finding is in the search. Yeah. Tell me about these things. What are you getting at? So if I have an interest in something, I have to know its backstory. I have to be knowledgeable in it. I think in life in general, there's so many questions that we're never meant to know the answer to. And talking about anxiety, that can be something that can bury you or throw you into an anxiety loop or whatever. And I think for anybody who wants to be knowledgeable in something, that you might not ever have the answer to. You have to have faith or you have to really find this internal peace with knowing that like you could study something your whole life and never really know the answer to it. And that'd be okay. You know? So for those lyrics specifically, it's kind of just a broad take on life. I think the, probably the meaning of life is way more simple than we think it is. It's when we start really digging, you know, is where we start making ourselves kind of crazy about it, you know? We overcomplicate life. It's We overcomplicate. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not supposed to be that difficult. I don't, maybe it is. I don't know, but <laughs> it's just the notion of like, 
you know, it's not the destination, it's the road to there and allowing yourself to realize that, you know? Yeah. Life isn't a static experience. It's a, you know, sort of ever evolving time continuum. And that's a road of sorts, a time road that we're all on. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. talk about flatland because this is about a place you come from i sense yeah it's about lubbock i wrote it with cory kent white who's uh, from oklahoma he's also from a similar geographical plane <laughs> and just being able to stand on a coke can and see the curves of the earth you know it's one of those places you know nobody loves where they're from when they're growing up we've talked about this in the van here recently, my guitar player is from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is like one of the most beautiful towns in the country. And nobody likes where they grew up. You know, it's when you leave that place and you have this new perspective on it is I think when you really find it was those places and those people that kind of built you and formed you, you know, Nashville is a beautiful place. Middle Tennessee is a beautiful place. It's got seasons, which West Texas doesn't have seasons. We have summer and we have winter and that's it, you know? So here in Nashville, we have seasons, we have rivers, there's lakes, there's trees. It's never felt like home and it won't, you know? Yeah. That's what you say. I still don't sound like them. 
Even though you got a Southern accent of sorts. Uh, it's, it's different than the... It's a different Southern yeah. accent, isn't it? Yes, sir. Yeah. It's a little faster and we don't know how to say our eyes. <laughs> so, uh, honestly, that song is just simple. You know, no matter where I'm, where I'm at, the flatland is always home. It's always home. This song has a real melancholy, nostalgic tone, sort of a wistfulness to it. Do you think about moods like that when you're writing a song or does it just come to you? I think this is a little bit more difficult to do in co-writes. You and your co-writers need to be absolutely on the same page. But the hope is always that the song that comes out is an example of the emotion that you have about the content you know, that you emote what that feeling is. For me, that's been simpler on just single rights, you know, just writing by myself, because some of my favorite songs are songs I've written by myself. And some of my favorite songs from other people are songs that they've written by themselves, because you're able to really, really get in touch with what that emotion is. And you're not overthinking the lyric. You know, that's, that's, I think the thing that happens a lot with songwriters is we tend to just overthink the lyric and we write it backwards and forwards. We have a tendency to overwrite, you know, and you can have the most clever line and clever hook of a song and it doesn't pull any kind of emotion out of you. You know, I go and listen to, um, James McMurtry had a great song on the last record. I don't remember what that record's called. It's with like Copper Canteen and all those songs. I think it's the, the latest one that he put out. Anyway, there's a song called You Got To Me. In that recording, he has this XL, You Got To Me. And it's just the way it lands. It's like not reinventing the wheel, but that song and the subject matter of that song, I know that feeling. I know that place. And he had to have written it by himself. That song is all mood. And James McMurtry is one of the best songwriters that there is. Ever yeah. period bar none, fight me on it. You know, like he's that good. But that song is the perfect marriage between a great lyric and an equally great emotion. It's such nostalgia. And so for Flatland, it's it's trying to tap into that thing, you know. And it helped that I was writing it with somebody who's from a similar part of the world. Because geographically, again, there's not a lot to really love out there. I mean, man, it's tough. Like, we have 60, 70 mile an hour wind gust. I mean, it's blowing dirt. It's dry. Every year is a drought. You know, this winter, of course, this cold snap was a little uh, different, but the windshield was negative 20. It's a tough place to live. For me, there's, despite all that, there's such a love of the place and a love of the people that I just kind of feel it. You know what I mean? I've been, hell, I've been in Tennessee for coming on nine years and like I'm from West Texas. You're not rooting for the Titans yet? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's part of, if you're going to live here, you have to root. Yeah, I got to root for the local team. You, you have to root for the local team. What teams did you root for in Texas? Well, the Cowboys, but I was I was a youngster. You know, it was America's team. Yeah, there you go. I get I get that. You got to root, you know, support the locals. I love the chorus here. Out of place, out of state, out of sorts, I don't belong. But the part I love in this song is when you say it keeps calling me over and over again. And the thing I like is the insistent, repetitive guitar lick that leads up to this harmonic crescendo. Like, how did that come about? So Jeremy Fetzer played guitar on my last record as well. On this record, I used my band, but I also brought in Jeremy. We were in between guitar players and our new guitar player also played a couple of tracks on this record. But Jeremy, I, I wanted the continuity between the last record and this record, right? So I wanted some of those same guitar tones for a couple of reasons. Jeremy's really great at figuring out really cool guitar parts. That's not just like shred a palooza, 
or not just, you know, hot licks country pick. And like, he's really great of thinking about guitar as a producer. You know, he's got that like part mindset of like, this is going to work for the song. And so I wanted that because I mean, that's his wheelhouse, but also where you could listen to the last record and this record and you could see the progression, you know what I mean? Like you could see how we got from the last record to this record, but those records also be different. I mean, that's all Jeremy Fetzer. He's great with coming up with parts and figuring out how to build moments. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a moment that builds and you're like, just like waiting for it as a listener and getting drawn in to the crescendo that you know is coming. Well, and I think a lot of it is understanding what type of song it is, because some songs you need to like pull that mood out of it. And then, you know, you kind of base your production choices around that. You know, for me, it's always a song first. What is the song? What does it mean? What's the mood? What's the feeling of it? Let's build everything around that. Some songs are just rockers. Some songs you want to hear, you know, a fifties Les Paul just cranked to 11. Some songs you need that. Some songs are super pop songs that you need 808s, drum tracks. And like, that's what those songs need for Flatland. When you listen to it, it's really a simple song. It kind of is what it is for me. It's, this is how I was feeling about the place where I'm from and where I am and, you know, in relation and Jeremy killed the guitar part on that. Have you played this live? Because I can see the chorus, the Flatland is calling me home being a terrific sing-along with the audience, especially in the quiet last chorus. Yeah. And we've been playing it out for a while now. Well, I'll say a while. We hadn't played much in the last year, but it is one that... I feel like it does land pretty well. You know, it, there was a struggle to figure out where we put it in our set. Also, it kind of depends on like where we play because, you know, a lot of people aren't from Flatland. A lot of people don't get it. But for the people that do, you can see it kind of land. And for the people that don't, they're like, ah, I don't know what, you know, I'm from the hills, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the city. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So when it works, it works for sure. Just enough to fill up half a dresser And the other half reminds me I'm alone I pull my hat down low as I step out into the morning These check-out times do number Chasing Old Highs, the title cut from the album. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is about 
your rodeo experience and having your feet in two worlds, the rodeo, but it's kind of a sad love song to that. Oh, it is for sure. Well, so I haven't really told the story. A couple people know it, but I got kicked out of a bar here in Nashville and I won't say why, but it was a uh, closing time and I got, I got kicked off and thrown down by Bowser. Had you been overserved? Uh, yeah, well, maybe I'd overserved myself. He didn't really so much throw me down as I tripped over my foot. And he was kind of like showing me to the door. So it made it look like he was throwing me out. There was me and just one other guy out on the patio. Like, I'm not a huge partier. The next morning, like, it was just, I had the Sunday scaries like crazy. You know, just so ashamed and, and just, you know, at the time I was 29 or 30. I don't remember how old, 29, I guess. I was like, I'm getting too old for this. And it's like, I can't believe that happened last night. I was just so disgusted with myself. Anyway, I'd written down though, like that day or the next day, I wrote down hitting new lows. And yeah, it's just how it felt. I was just, I'm hitting new lows. I'm getting older and I'm still hitting new lows. And I had to write like two days later and I was still kind of feeling it, you know. And I told my buddy who I was writing with, it's like, I got this. I told him the story of what happened. I was like, I got this idea. You know, I'm getting older, but I'm, I'm just hitting new lows. And he's like, what if it's, you're chasing old highs and hitting new lows. And I was like, oh my God, we have to write this like right now. And then I kind of had some other stuff that was just, you know, scrambled and scribbled in my, my journal. And uh, it turned into a rodeo song. It, it fit the content so well, you know, there's so much parallel between rodeoing and playing music. It's long drives for a lot of times, a little pay and being away from your family. And then, you know, you're getting older, you have to figure out like, okay, there's an expiration date. Like how long do you go? And it was pretty fun to kind of take a step back, even though I felt so much like shame <laughs> for where this hook of this song came from. It was kind of nice to like say, okay, I'm 15 years older now and I'm still rodeoing. That's what this song's about. I think the first verse is one of the best verses I've read in a while or listened to in a rise. This lyric, these cheap motels are starting to feel like home. I got just enough to fill up half a dresser and the other half reminds me I'm alone. I think that is the experience of checking into a cheap motel. You know, you have, you don't have a lot of clothing with you. You have enough to fill up half a dresser and you open up the other half and there's, there's no girl with you or companion with you. And like, it's such a great lyric because you capture that whole setting and scene and the kind of the loneliness of that motel feeling because motels are lonely you know you know you combine that with the melody here which is sort of lustrous and velvety it's just really really good song it's one of my favorites it's one of my favorites i've written so you know chasing old highs is kind of a feeling of drug addiction because they say that the first high is the only good high and then everyone after is kind of less. And then, you know, every time you is hitting new lows until you hit rock bottom. Yeah, that's well, that's life, you know. Were you thinking about that when you were writing this? Not really. No. I mean, <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. So, um, other than I've being hung over. <laughs> yeah, other than being hung over. But yeah, there is a truth to that whatever your vice is and everybody's got a vice. If you think that you don't, you need to get a hobby, you know, like everybody has a vice. Yeah. Mine's podcasting. I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's great. I have a couple of vices. It hasn't been drugs, you know, or anything like that, but the amount of time money I've sunk into music writing, et cetera. But the feeling of chasing something where, you know, I remember the first time that I sat in with, um, with the drummer, uh, it was my best friend. We were, 
I think, 11, 11 or 12 years old. It was just he and I, and he was really good. His name's Jay Saldana. He's had some really great gigs over the years. Like, I feel really lucky that we grew up as best buddies, you know, and we went on to do like these different things musically. It's just so cool. Like most of the times, you know, like when I talk to buddies, they're like, yeah, we had this little like garage band, whatever. And the drummer sucked or whatever. Or, you know, it's never like a good thing. Like Jay, I've still will call him for like filling gigs or whatever. Like he's phenomenal. And he plays for a long list of some great guys. So I still remember when he and I got together to play. And it was the first time I'd ever played with another musician. He was way better than, than I was. It's just like this feeling of like, holy crap you're seeing kind of what your world might be, you know, this feeling of like this smile that you can't, you can't really hold back. Just this, the feeling's indescribable. Getting kind of struck by that lot. And then early on, it's like, you're always chasing that, you know, or the first time that you write a song that you love that other people can connect to. Or you see the audience reaction and it's positive and you're like, Hey, I like this. This is like a drug. This is a drug for me. For me, it's always been about writing the next song. And just it being better than the last song and having so much pride in the craft and what I'm trying to create and honestly just trying to write a song because I'm my own worst enemy. But if I can look at a song and be like, I'm so proud of that. So I have some questions about some of the lyrics and I ain't drawn a high lonesome lately. Okay. What is a high lonesome? The first time I heard that expression was in a Jimmy Reed song. He wrote a song called High and Lonesome. Yeah. Different thing. <laughs> it's what my dad had called like just old, honest bucking horses, just horses that were good enough that you could pull a check on, just nothing that's going to throw you anything too tricky or too trashy. And just kind of like, you know, there'd be horses when you'd, when you'd get your jaw where you'd see whatever that horse was next to your name. It just kind of gave you that excitement because you knew that you were going to be good points on that horse or that you're going to pull a check or whatever, you know, just like good, honest bucking horses. So my dad would always call them um, high lonesomes, you know, an old high lonesome, just an old, honest bucking horse. So we had a conversation about that when we were writing the song because it was my knee jerk to write that. And then, so my co-writer on the song is David Michael. He's from Orange Beach, California. Okay. <laughs> they don't do rodeo there, do they? <laughs> Not really. No, he grew up surfing and stuff, you know, and, <laughs> but he is one of my favorite writers because he knows how important the vocabulary is. Right. And so throughout the course of writing the song, he'd been asking a lot of questions about the vocabulary and about kind of about everything about riding bucking horses and, and whatnot, which is great because when you have somebody that cares that much, that's a big deal. You know, if you're going to write a song about race cars, the people that know, you know, like I don't, I don't know anything about NASCAR. If I tried to sit down and write a song about NASCAR, the people that know about NASCAR would be like, this guy's like, this is a fraud. You know, I told David, I was like, I don't know if we need to have that line. It might be too insider. I don't even know who calls those old buckers like that. How lonesome. That's just what we always called them. You know, like me and my dad, and my family. It's like, it might be a little bit too insider. And he's like, no, that's exactly why we need to have it in the song because it is. Sometimes the audience doesn't need to know what it means, but I'm glad you're sharing that with us. Yeah, absolutely. Because I thought it communicated a feeling that was pretty cool, a high lonesome feeling. That can bring in the conversation about poetry and deciding for yourself too. So for those that don't know what it means and assign their own meaning to it, that's part of the poetry of, of songwriting too. In that same verse, do I love this to a point I'd let it kill me? And if I do, then maybe she was right. I really like that because you introduced the girl in the song. 
Right, and the and the song's not about the girl, but it is, right? It always, but is. No, yeah. <laughs> well, it sure. isn't always, but she's in the song for sure. She's in the song. She's in the song because there has to be that accountability. I think in the song of like because there's a lot of those people that just go until they can't and don't think twice about it. But whatever you're leaving at the house, I think it, that's kind of the inspiration for the question of like, okay, am I over the hill? You know. If you didn't have anybody holding you accountable, what does it matter? If you're totally alone going up and down the road with nobody back at the house, like who cares if you're wasting money? Who cares if like you're, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's easy to be freewheeling if you have no responsibilities or no one else to love but yourself. But it's also hard to go through life that way too. Yeah. I think it all depends on how you're wired. But for me, yeah, I couldn't do it. Obviously love my wife, but being married is one of the best things that's ever, that I could have ever done ever done you know so that's not the girl that's in this song that that was a different girl okay <laughs> who is telling you to take quit it if you want to stay with me <laughs> the girl in the song is the i think is appropriate for the story of the song right so does that you know by that verse i know the answer but i won't tell the answer was her relationship over is that why there's a reflection or is the relationship still going and what she said really be the the catalyst of making the protagonist like think about maybe it's time to hang it up you know save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get half gallons of delicious kroger milk for 129 each then get flavorful tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound all with your card and a digital coupon shop these deals at your local kroger less than five miles away or tap the screen now to download the kroger app to save big today kroger fresh for everyone Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Same old feelings always come back in. I thought I felt the change, but now I can't. I'm out of hope, but I ain't hopeless. And I don't care. But I ain't careless The same old feelings They always come back in I'm a tethered heart Just hanging by its string I'm a tired song But I found the strength to sing New ones come and old ones leave And I'm stuck somewhere in between I'm a tethered heart just hanging by his string I ain't found my pot of gold But I've seen a few rainbows About for I don't know Ain't you what I'm looking for Searching for a truth So Forever to Get There is actually one of my favorites on the new album. Tell me about where this song comes from. I wrote that with uh, Big Joe Walker. Joe was coming up from Texas to write some songs. I think that was the first time we'd written together. I think I wrote it pretty close to when I wrote Freewheeling because it's a similar thing, but um, 
it's a little bit more melancholy, you know, and me and Joe are going through ideas and man, I was kind of that week. I was burnt out. I'd been writing a bunch that week. I had this chord progression that kind of felt Beatlesy. It didn't feel like something that I normally wrote. Are you talking about the climbing scale that goes into the chorus? Kind of. For the musicians out there, what happens is it goes from rep for the chorus it builds on the four and then it goes to the four minor. So it's kind of like this Orbison Beatles type of thing. It's, it's a very classic sound. So that whole feeling, you know, basically the long way to go and forever to get there. It's like, I haven't got there yet, but I will despite everything that I've been through. It's still trying to have an optimistic take on like, man, it has been tough, but I'll get there. I'll get there when I'm supposed to wrote it. And Joe was like, man, I think we got something here. This is pretty cool. And I was like, yeah, I think so too. Like, yeah, cool, man. I'm glad that you're excited about it. And it wasn't that I wasn't, I felt really brain fried. And so like the next day I came back to the song and I was like, whoa, like, I think the song is really cool, you know? And then I came back the next day and I was like, okay, this song is, yeah, I really like this song. And now it's one of my favorite. We've started playing that song live right before the pandemic. The record was, was recorded for the most part. We just started kind of, we're like, I have to start working in some of the new ones before the record comes out, you know, and it was supposed to come out much earlier than it did. I can see this having a sing-along chorus. I wrote that down in my notes, like, especially where you, in the last chorus, you bring it down, you know, so I could see you say, bring it down and have everybody singing along with you. And it also has an element of call and response to the lines. Every line is a sort of, I ain't found my pot of gold. But I've seen a few rainbows. It's like this sort of call and response thing. Yeah. Well, it's it's a sad song, but trying to be optimistic, you know, it's honestly, I don't think it's a sad song. I think it's a hopeful song, you know, but when we first started working that song in the set, like I remember the band being like, you know, they obviously we played it in the studio, but when we really played it live, we all just kind of looked at each other and like, this is, it became our favorite song to play in the set. And I think it still is. Why is that? Because there's so much dynamic to it. Musically, it's it's really dynamic. The there's parts of that song when we play it live where almost you know you get as quiet as a whisper, and then by that last chorus when we're really belting it, we're belting it, you know, and it feels powerful, and you can feel it on stage. And what's the audience reaction like? What do you see in the audience? Honestly, that one I keep my eyes closed, so I don't know. I used to be really bad about that. About like I could get through a whole set and never open my eyes. Why do you keep your eyes closed? Well, now I keep them open, you know. <laughs> Now I feel more like it was just an anxiety, you know, keeping your eyes closed. It was like kind of your own spot, your own headspace. It would make me feel awkward if I would like look at somebody in the crowd because as a fan of music, if I was in a crowd when I made like eye contact with the lead singer, I'd just like look away just because it was just my own personal thing. And it's something to hide behind, you know, but I've tried to like here in the last couple of years, like keep my eyes open and, you know, really kind of like not be overly aware of like weird, twisted facial expressions, like really try to tell the story, you know, and show what I'm trying to sing. I think there's strength in that, you know, it's part of the song. It's part of watching a show. It took me a while to get out of my own way and be like, man, if I'm watching this show, I don't want to watch somebody who's got his eyes closed the whole time. Like that's, I don't want to see that, but on forever to get there comes from kind of a deeper place that I think most of the time I want to keep my eyes closed. It's almost like we're singing it for us. You know, we're singing it like I'm singing it for me and I want to feel it. So I think 
there's times where it's appropriate to keep your eyes closed. <laughs> you want the audience to feel the feeling that you're feeling, but which is highly internalized. That's really interesting. Outside of nowhere, and I was born when she blew in the sun of a known blue northern. I cut my teeth on the western plains, the kind that hardened out skin. And in a land where it seldom rains, you find that your roots dig in, find that your roots dig in. Say nobody makes it here. This American frontier, it feels like home in a hell. But we're still down here south of the angels. There's another ode to Lubbock, I think, on your album called South of the Angels. I like that title because it made me think, you know, what is South of an Angel? And, you know, you think the devil in hell is sort of on its way south, perhaps, but, you know, earth is south. I mean, I was trying to, what did you mean by South of the Angels, I guess? I, did, I was trying to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. This is going to sound like such a stupid question just because I haven't thought about it before. What's it called? The Northeast Southwest. The compass? The compass. Yeah, but not the compass. Like, uh, if you were to flip the compass on its, on its axis, right? And heaven's north, hell's south. And we're just somewhere kind of right in the middle. We're somewhere south of the angels, you know? But not all the way south. <laughs> not all the way south. Not all the way south. But like, just, you know, if you were to kind of look at a compass flat, just flipping the compass up on its axis where, you know, right is east, left is west, north is up, and south is down, right? So there's this guy in town, Billy McLaren, who plays fiddle for John Party. He's a great songwriter. And we grew up 15 minutes apart. So before I moved to Lubbock, when I was like eight, right? So I'm originally from this really small town called Rawls, Rawls, Texas. So a little bit west of Rawls, there's this town called Idaloo. It's like 20 minutes. So Billy is from Idaloo. The first eight years of my life was from Rawls. And so it was one just one of those things. Like I went through 20 at the time, 28 years, 29 years of life before I met somebody in Nashville who's a great songwriter and a hell of a musician who grew, grew up essentially 20 minutes down the road from me, you know? So we had some mutual friends. We got together and we started writing. And we just started writing this song about these tough people from West Texas, you know, just hard people, hard land, and try to capture what makes this place special and what makes this place tough, you know? And that song started out as a rocker. 
Well, it's not. I mean, it's really distinctly different song on the album. It's very atmospheric and right. I would call it spooky. It's got this haunting sort of smoldery, bluesy spookiness to it. I don't, what were you going for? That song started off as a up-tempo rocker that was in E major and it had a similar progression. It sounded tough. It wasn't a happy rocker. It sounded tough, but it was mainly just kind of a power chord, kind of throwback, late 50s inspired rock and roll song. We opened every set with it for like a year. And then we got in the studio and it did not work. It did not translate. And sometimes that's how it happens. And we tried everything. It almost got to a point where we're like, this isn't working. I have plenty of songs. Like, let's get rid of it, you know? And so we unplugged everything. We were sitting on the couch in the studio. This is one of those things like everything happens for a reason, right? So we kept the chorus progression, but instead of an E major, I started playing an E minor. The original progression went E, D, A. Instead of that, I did E minor, G, A. Then kept the same chorus progression, finger picked it, slowed it down, and it completely changed the song. And I remember that moment was weird. It was like, let me try this, you know? So finger picking it, the whole band's sitting around, my producer's sitting around, and I play a, a verse and a chorus, and everybody's like, this is it. That's exactly what the song should be. And it doesn't need drums. Might not need bass. It felt right when we recorded it that way. And I didn't know if anybody would get it and didn't care because I loved it so much. I was glad that it was salvaged. We were beating our heads up against the wall because I think the guys all loved the song too. And we just couldn't figure out how to make it work. One of my questions on the show regularly is how do you know when a song is finished? And sort of correlated to that is what is the feeling or what is the intuition or what is the actual wisdom and knowledge of when it is it that feeling that you just described what was that when you knew it was it and you were like that's it relief (laughs) you know (laughs) relief for anybody that writes out there there are some songs that inspiration falls in your lap you write a song in 30 minutes and you know that it's the song and that's it. You don't need that sense of relief because you're not working it. But what was it about it in E major that you knew was wrong? That Like, what was that feeling? It wasn't that it was wrong. It was what we've done live is not translating to the studio. It doesn't feel special. Honestly, I was just throwing everything I could at it. Finger picking it in E major first and making it like, a, and it's like, no, well, that sounds like a Delta Blues song, which is fine. That's just not really our style. And then I made it minor and started slowing down the finger picking Because the lyric on it is pretty dark lyric anyway. Oh, yeah. No, this is a sad, sad song. I haven't been to Lubbock, but honestly, this does not make me want to go there. (laughs) Should I go? Is it? Should everybody visit Lubbock? Yeah, you absolutely should go. (laughs) Why are there so many songs written about Lubbock? Why are there so many, like... Books take place in love. Like there's so much allure to this place that you would otherwise not care about. It's because culturally it's so rich and so deep. Those people are what make that town worth visiting and that culture and being able to feel it, you know, and probably a lot of people wouldn't be able to feel it. I do every time I get back to Lubbock. You said a son of an old blue Northern. What is that? Like when that tough cold wind blows in. It's a blue wind, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was that, you know, like a blue norther, like that cold norther that blows in. Man, when it blows in, like you feel that chill in your bones. Like, again, winters in West Texas are tough. And for people that that aren't completely knowledgeable about Texas or have, you know, visited Austin once in their life or Dallas or whatever, you know, I think a lot of people 
think that Texas has these really mild winters when depending on where you're at, man. Yeah, that, that that's true, I think, in South Texas. But when you get in West Texas, first of all, you have to remember how big the state is, you know. So when you're talking about the difference between Houston and Lubbock, you're talking about hours and hours and hours of driving and completely different geographically and different climates. Oh, totally different. So Lubbock is really dry. It's windy. It's dry heat and bitter cold. You know, you get a couple weeks out of each year <laughs> that are that are awesome. And he said, heaven's where the cotton grows and God speaks a Spanish tongue. What's that mean? Yeah. So that region grows more cotton than anywhere else really in the United States. My dad runs a cotton gin. So cotton thrives in that climate. And on the God Speaks the Spanish Tongue, there's a really rich Hispanic culture around West Texas. You know, our border is Mexico. Because of that, West Texas has this really rich heritage and culture. And that to me, it's kind of that sentiment of like almost flatland. You know, if heaven is what you want it to be, then for me, it's like, I'm eating enchiladas with God. You know what I mean? <laughs> I bet the food is really good. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Yeah. It's the classic Tex-Mex cuisine, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's where it came from, huh? It gets better and better the further west you go. Like Lubbock's five and a half hours east of El Paso. West Texas is a huge region and there's a lot of uh, argument and speculation of where West Texas starts, you know? Scholars and theologists have argued for years over where West Texas starts. There's no actual boundary. There's no river boundary like the Mississippi to tell you. Correct. So that was the thing of just like, I love that feeling of if I were to die tomorrow and get to heaven, that there's going to be some semblance of West Texas because there are things that I absolutely love about it. There's things I hate about it. You know, like who loves 70 mile an hour wind gusts? Nobody does. Who loves 110 degree dry heat? Like nobody does. But there are things that I absolutely love about it. There's enough that people love about it to keep them there. Absolutely. It's romanticizing it. Some of my favorite authors do a way better job than I ever could. I like this lyric, head like a turban and a heart of mesquite. Yeah. A head like a turbine and a heart of mesquite. So the wind turbines, they swept through West Texas. They're everywhere out there, I imagine. I mean, they're starting to get them around Lubbock for sure, but they're more a little southeast of Lubbock. There's those big old everywhere and then mesquite it's just such a hard wood it's parasitic it can take over anything you know oh really oh it's like a weed like you'll go and grub mesquite you know you don't want really mesquite overtaking your place it's not like a well, i guess it could be like a weed i mean yeah it just grows fast and you can't grow the cotton anymore and it sucks everything out of the soil and it grows really fast thick it's got thorns and it's hard to get rid of you know once it overtakes something but the head like a turbine and a heart of mesquite is just kind of a testament to that place, you know, personifying those things that you see around West Texas and just, you know, having a hard heart, like having to be tough, you know, because of the, the places is tough, you know, head like a turbine, you know, those wind turbines are so big. You know, I'd heard that the distance between each tip is a football field. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So when you get up on them and you realize how big they are and how powerful they are, it's using those things that you see in that environment, personifying them and just, you know, being strong headed and having a heart, a hard, tough heart, you know, heart of mesquite. Sounds like those are attributes to survive in Lubbock, Texas. So 
Well, I mean, let's not talk about like let's not you <laughs> know not treat it like it's Sahara. It's, you know, yeah, it's dramatized yeah. in the song. It's dramatized, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely it's dramatized, dramatized in the song. In the song. <laughs> but okay. it is tough. It is tough. It's a hard living out there. But because of it, it's like it molds the best people and some of the best culture. Bounciest, sort of poppiest songs is Hello Sunshine on the album. Kind of radio friendly in some ways. It didn't start off radio friendly. It didn't? No. The original chorus, I was trying to think about this the other day. I've written that song twice now with uh, the same co-writer. When I, I first had a bunch of it written before, I wrote it with, the, uh, with a writer, Mike Walker, and I brought it in the mic and that original lyric, it, man, it was just a songwriter's lament. It was something that I loved and it still ended up being a song that I love, but it was one of those like, man, nobody's going to like this. I was writing a lot of songs that were just, they were just like, I can say this because I wrote it, but I was like, you know, looking back, it's like, give me a break. You know what I mean? Like I get it. You're sad or whatever. That's how I feel now about how I was writing then. And sad songs are great. They're easier to write. You know, I agree with that. I think, you know, it's hard to write a happy song and it's hard to write a love song. And people don't understand that for the most part. A great happy song and a great love song. It's much easier to write about pain and sorrow and suffering. Yeah. Well, there's more of it. It's hard to describe the joyful moments of life. That's right. That's right. I think it's hard to have perspective on the joyful moments because a lot of times we don't realize that those are the joyful moments. You know, that's why you get so many nostalgia songs and like, that's why country music, pop country music can focus in on one thing that makes people really happy. And that be the theme for like five to 10 years because it works. And those are the things that make people happy. Right. So Hello Sunshine, it started as just a songwriter songwriters song. Then Mike had the turnaround on the, on the hook. It was a, 
hello, sunshine. It's been a long time. Come on in. And when he said that, I remember thinking like, this feels like a classic country song, reading it down on paper, you know, like it feels kind of Roger Millery. And that's how he wrote it the second time. It was more of a finger picking thing. It felt like that kind of throwback Roger Millery thing. And that's really kind of how I play it acoustic. And then we got it into the studio and realized that it could kind of be this up-tempo, almost rocker type of song with you know thick harmonies in the chorus. And it really worked in the studio. And it's exciting for me because how we play it live in the band and how I play it live acoustic, it's two different versions of the same song. I think it's kind of two different emotions. When it's full band, we play it how it is on the record, right? And there's kind of this mood of like, it's a sunny day and I'm not letting myself get myself down today. You know what I mean? When I play it acoustic and finger pick it, it's kind of more of a feeling like it's the first good day after a lot of bad ones. Well, I like this about your songwriting is that you never leave the listener without some hope. You don't just like punch him in the face and leave him on the ground. You just throw a wrinkle of hope. This one is full of hope and sort of rose colored promise and positivity, which I love, you know, that you actually found that in a song when some of the other ones are just sad, sad songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. At my core, I'm a hopeful person, you know, and I've been very, very, very sad before. And I've, I'm always, again, full of anxiety, but who's not, you know? And I do love listening to super deep, super sad artists. And there's some of those guys that just can pull it out of you, you know, and just make you cry. Those songs that you're driving by yourself and like you realize that you're, you get that lump in your throat and it's like, man, those are great. There was a time where I was kind of under the idea that for me, writing songs was like the sadder, the better. Personally, it became pretty exhausting. It's like, I love those songs, but I need some happiness too. I need some hope. We all do. We all do. And I'm glad you gave it to us in Hello Sunshine. I appreciate it. But if you have a job as a, a writer, or creator, or an artist or whatever, I think first it, the job is to be honest. You know, so if your life is absolutely sad and you're basically reporting on what your life is, like that's the job of it. If you are a super happy dude and you want to put out pop songs and write pop songs or, or gal or whoever you are, then do that. Like make your art be a reflection of who you are as a person. And that's been something that I hope that has kind of gotten stronger with me the older I get, the more songs that I write, because I don't know if it's always been like that. But here lately, it's the most honest representation of where I am in my life is, yeah, I mean, life can suck and we just had a pandemic and whatever, you know what I mean? Like we, we, and we all been through it together, like in a weird way, it's kind of unified us all through this like really horrible situation. But as far as the art is concerned, being aware of the anxieties and the sadness and some of the darkness, but also I'm a hopeful person. I want my songs, at least some of them, to be a little hopeful. Some of them aren't, you know, admittedly. But on Hello Sunshine, probably when you compare lyrics to some of the other songs, you could make the argument that it's not as deep or, or whatever. But the song still means so much to me because I remember where I was at in my life when I wrote it. And it was like, it was this silver lining after a bunch of clouds. It was this first kind of breath of fresh air where when we rewrote it, I was like, man, it just, I kind of feel good. Yeah, that's a wonderful feeling to recognize. You know, you've been sad for a while and all of a sudden you have a upbeat moment and to embrace it and cherish it and to 
write a song about it. I thank you for doing that. Yeah, well, and being a songwriter can be pretty emotionally demanding and exhausting sometimes, especially if you co-write a bunch, because a lot of times you're kind of in a room with somebody who you probably don't know that well, or maybe you do. It doesn't really matter. But then you're kind of almost like, not forced, but you bear your soul and some of your happiest ups and darkest downs to somebody you may not know too well for the sake of a song. Like it's an emotional roller coaster. And you do that a lot. And it's like, I think that's kind of the common thread amongst a lot of artists is, you know, if you do it long enough, man, you're constantly tapping into pretty heavy emotions. Yeah. It's like you're on the therapy couch for 24 hours straight all the time, day in and day out. And outside of psychology, it's like, you know, is there another job that really, where that's almost a requirement, you know? So all that to say for the listeners out there is I'm very aware that I am, you sleep in the bed that you make. I write songs. This is part of it. I know that I'm going to be constantly tapping into like, you know, sadness and happiness and et cetera. But, you know, because of that, it does come with the territory where, I would wager that there's more sad songwriters than there are happy ones. Hmm, interesting. I, 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 <laughs> I wouldn't bet against you on that one. I think, I think you're, you're probably right. And frankly, I think it's harder to write a great love song and people don't realize that, but I talk about that on the show a lot. Like I, I really embrace a great love song and a great happy song. And, and thank you for giving us one in hello sunshine. To your house but Like a patchwork quilt And when you've learned them once You always will Living miles Living miles Living miles I know I'm still Just in case We learned a lot When we learned to lay You stole my shirt Stole my shirt You stole my shirt But then you kissed my face And damn the Things we lost, things we lost, things 
11 miles. This one is more hypnotic. And there's organ throughout the album. I really like the sad organ in this. And I thought this song was a beautiful song about a first love. It's about a, a lot of just first everythings. The song is more about the loss of innocence than it's the collective feeling of the loss of innocence, the first loves, the etc. It's not about a single person. It's not about a single experience that happened, but it's about that feeling, about that feeling of like the last of your innocence. Yeah. And why 11 miles? Our house was basically like 11 miles from town, 11 to 13 miles from Lubbock, but 13 miles doesn't sing that well. <laughs> you know, 11 miles is 11 miles basically 11 miles from lubbock or from you know kind of where the city was got it because i um, didn't associate this with being in lubbock this song i really i get the thing about first and the loss of innocence the thing that catches me on this song is the percussion is really really good there's hard drums with lots of space and these sort of shimmering symbols on it who did this and tell me about how you put that together Brian Cox has been my drummer for, and one of my best friends for a few years now. And Brian is one of the guys I truly believe I'll be working with until I'm done working. Like he's one of the best drummers. First of all, let me kind of brag a little bit on these guys. I'm really lucky to have a lights out band. They are killer. And I will say like top to bottom, this band is tight and they're tight with multiple guitars because you're typically like on an acoustic, if I'm correct. Yeah, I played a little bit of electric. And so Jeremy's not in my band, but Jeremy played most of the guitar parts. My now guitar player, Mike Dunton, played some guitar tracks. He played like the solo on Freewheeling. And then Rob McNally, who's a first call slide guy, played on some a couple other songs. My bass player was my old bass player who I've been with for for years and years and years. And it was this whole thing. Okay. So first of all, yeah, like hats off to those guys because, and I will brag on them. They are a great band and it makes my job easy because I don't have to worry about how something's going to sound because I know how it's going to sound. But also there is the conversation that comes up and it comes up a lot when you're making records in Nashville. And it's why would you not use the Nashville studio musicians? That's a good question. It's a fair question. That's such a Nashville insider question. It's a fair question. It's a question that has a good answer to. For me, if I didn't have the guitar playing that I had on this record, first of all, for this type of record, you know, for kind of something that's more on the, the alternative side, the Americana side, he's one of those guys that gets the calls. Like, you know, he is one of those guys because he captures the mood. But if you hire one of the first call music row guys, pop country guys, whatever, you don't get that feeling. You don't get the mood of the record. The mood changes, right? Let's say you call whoever to play bass, whoever to play drums. They're still not going to care as much as my guys do. Hmm. So there's a lot of caring in this album. You can feel it. Absolutely. They care about the parts. They care about their mark on the record. They care about the songs because they're the ones that have been out playing them. And it, it helps too. Like I'm so lucky and thankful to get to work with these guys because it is the first time where I have my favorite band that I've had yet. And not everybody can say that. Like, you know, there's sometimes 
either personalities clash or, or whatever, or sometimes, you know, one of your road guys is not the best musician, but he's on the road with you because he's a great hang. I'm lucky in that the guys that are on the record are great hangs and great musicians. And I've known them for a really long time. So yeah, they care. You could make the case that you could call first call guitar player so-and-so and he could come in and knock it out. But maybe the mood's not there. Maybe the feel's not there, whatever. And that's stuff that- Makes a difference. Yeah. For the record that we made, and again, if I was making like kind of a top 40 sounding pop country record, my idea about it might change a little bit. But for what we're doing for these songs, the right guys were in the room. So Brian can do- anything on drums. He's one of my favorite drummers of all time. So the drum part on 11 miles, he just like comes up with it first take. So actually, yeah, I've been producing this really talented gal here in Nashville named Allie Dunn here lately. And Brian played the drums on it. And Brian, he likes hearing the song, but coming into the studio pretty fresh and open eared, and then just kind of playing with what feels good to him, what feels good for the song. His talent level is so high and his technique is high, but his knowledge of music past and present is really, really huge too. So he's got a lot of reference to pull from and he knows how to fit the song, which is super important. He can also sing anything like he can sing any harmony. Well, I haven't covered this with you on this episode, but I love your voice. I am, I, you know, it's one of the joys of doing this is I, I, I did not know your music before it was sent to me and I put it on and I am a Ross Cooper fan now. I love your voice. It's a beautiful tenor and it's got uh, soul and real range and tonality and you fit your voice to the song. And it's just, I like listening to your music if you don't get the point. Well, <laughs> thanks, man. I really appreciate that. talk about new orleans sure yeah this is kind of like a dark voodoo cajun mysticism whenever you write about no 
No, maybe a little bit. I don't know. We played the. I was just kind of being a smart aleck, but I think the reason I wrote that song in New Orleans, well, not entirely. This is an interesting story. We were out on the road. It was early, maybe early 2019. We were playing in New Orleans. I played House of Blues with the Steelwoods, rock and roll band. Great show, but it was like raining. It was a little cold. And my then girlfriend, now wife, I remember at that point of when we were on the road, like she was dealing with the stuff at the house, you know, and like, I was just kind of complaining about how musicians do. I was like, well, you know, we drive a lot and blah, 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 blah. And it was kind of like this, Hey buddy, like suck it up. You're out there doing what you've always wanted to do. You know, like it's going to be okay type of thing. So after the gig, I just like went into uh, the green room and I had my journal out and I just started like writing what I wanted to tell her, you know, just kind of like, it was almost just a journal entry, but it was almost kind of to her, but it was stuff that I would have said, well, it was late. First of all, I wasn't about to call her and just like complain more about, you know, my day of playing music, you know, when she's dealing with, you know, her work and keeping the house straight and et cetera. And so I wrote this all down on a page, you know, just word vomit, stream of consciousness, bam, there it is in the journal to just live and and never let live. And so then I was on the songwriters retreat. I was writing with two good friends. This guy, Randall King, who's blowing up in Nashville right now, like kind of traditional country, dance hall country, kind of 90s throwback, can sing anything. This guy's phenomenal. And then uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, Charlie Shafter, who's kind of that, he's only probably, I don't know, maybe eight years older than I am, seven, eight years older than I am. He's definitely kind of got that old guard sentiment of songwriting. You know, he's respected by everybody and he is a songwriter, songwriter. So when we're drawing names out of the hat for this writer's retreat, us three get paired up, matched up. That type of ride in hindsight could have been pretty stunted. Like we could have got nothing, you know, probably the odds that we got something were pretty low because you have three artists with big personalities that do three things that are pretty different, you know, just randomly drawn out of a hat. Yeah, there's like 11 or 12 of us on the retreat and we were doing, you know, groups of three that day and one group of four or whatever, however it landed. So we kind of figured out like, okay, what are we writing for? Which is important in those scenarios. Like you have to figure out, okay, who's putting out a record? Who's about to go in the studio? Who's working on something? Who are we writing for? And so I was in the studio and we figured out that we were going to write for me. And so I have a journal full of ideas and I'm reading through and I'm like this, this, and this. And so I, we'd get something and Randall would start singing it and he can make anything sound good because he sings so well. And I'm like, that's it. That's cool. You know? And then uh, Charlie's like, yeah, I'm not really into that. And then I read off something and like, Charlie's like, ah, this, he's like, I could, let's write that. That could be cool. And then Randall's like, yeah, I don't know. You know, it was just trying to find the thing and get us all on the same page. And then I was just like flipping through. I was like, oh wait, I have this weird like journal entry. It honestly, <laughs> it honestly sounds like psycho babble because it's like there's no punctuation. It's all stream of consciousness. It's just sometimes it's just you have to just write, 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 get it out before it goes away type of thing. So there's no punctuation. Some of the lines rhyme. Some of them don't. It sounds like psycho babble, but I'm reading through it and I'm like, this is just kind of how I felt after the show in New Orleans. It's almost kind of a letter to my wife and both of them were like, wait. That's pretty cool. And then Randall started singing this thing. It's like on the corner of Decatur in New Orleans, I'm calling. He picked up this melody and started singing it. And 
all of a sudden the song started kind of like falling together. And then Charlie and Randall just basically started taking like my page and then just like, okay, this line is the verse, this line, pre-chorus, verse, verse, verse. And it was kind of all there. And it was like, what the hell just happened? You know, like this, what, like what happened? And what was really cool. I love that song, but what was really cool about it was getting other artists as excited about the song is I was because it was a song that we all could have recorded. All three of those would have been completely different and of the same song. And everybody was excited about it. That doesn't happen a lot, you know, so it's kind of a cool moment when it does. Oh, maybe they'll record their versions and we'll get them all out there. Let's go. That'd be, <laughs> that'd be awesome. But to address your original question, so that's how the song started, right? I think you'll dig this. There are some of those like kind of like little nods at the mysticism of New Orleans, like the lyrics, such a night and I can't wait to leave is that's a nod to Dr. John such a night, right? Well, you're definitely talking about the French Quarter with some Zydeco band. Yeah, some Zydeco band was playing songs, you know. And then there's a little like accordion walk down. We didn't want to make it like too on the nose. Like, here's a song about New Orleans. Cue the accordions, boys. Anybody got some spoons? You know, like we didn't want to make it that. But we did want to have a couple of those like little nods, like thematically, I think. Because it's not a song about New Orleans. It's about missing your home. Yeah. Being on the road in New Orleans and missing your home and missing your loved ones. Yeah, missing your gal. So did you play this for your gal and how'd she react? Yeah, she loves it. Yeah. If she doesn't, she's a good liar. (laughs) I had this false notion that an artist writes a love song and then plays it for his partner and that somehow they would like break down in tears and like throw their arms around them and and hug them. And and I found that that doesn't really happen with songwriters. It's just kind of like, oh, you wrote a song. Oh, oh, it's about me. Yeah, it doesn't happen (laughs) all the time. Um, Because they're like, oh, you write songs every day. That's what you do. Oh, you wrote this one about me? um, Oh, so what? (laughs) Well, the cool thing is my father-in-law is a really great songwriter, which has helped me tremendously in my day-to-day because my wife is used to the lifestyle you know, she has, I think, a deep understanding of the life and career of an artist, probably more than the next person does, you know, because th- this is a completely different podcast altogether. But how many musicians do we know that hang it up early because their loved ones either don't get it or it's either one or the other or how many marriages are ruined or how many, you know what I mean? Like how it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Rodeo and musicians are challenging life. I don't know where you're going to get hurt more, on the stage or on a horse, buck and bronco, but you can get hurt in both jobs. You can get hurt real bad, you know? Yeah. I've made that joke before that I'm just a glutton for punishment, whether it be physical or emotional. You know, that's why I'm in the the careers that I've chosen. If there's any song that you've ever written, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want, and you could have any voice... Record that song. What voice, living voice, would you pick to record your song and which song of yours that you've written out of your whole repertoire would you pick? That is a great question. That is a great question. I'm going to try my best to answer it. There are voices that I love, but I've always cared more about the lyric. You know, I've always cared more about the content of the song. But... Having said that, one of my favorite all-time voices is uh, Willis Allen Ramsey. For those of you who know who Willis Allen Ramsey is, you know he put out one record, and I think I think in '73, 
could be wrong. I've heard tell that he's finally coming out with the long-awaited second album. But you know, if you've ever heard the song Muskrat Love, it, that was Willis Allen Ramsey, Satin Sheets, Geraldine and the Honeybee, like just dang near every song on that record has been cut by somebody else. You know, it's just it is a top to bottom great record, but his voice is so good. It's phenomenal. So maybe uh Will Sound Ramsey singing Freewheel and Feeling could be cool because I think he would just knock it out of the park. I think he would do it slower and really lean into the finger picking because that's another one that when I'm not playing full band, it's more of a finger picker. That would be cool. There we go. That's one of the best answers to that question that I have had on the show. Well, Ross Cooper, I have to thank you. Is there anything you want to plug or promote? Well, the new record came out a couple of Fridays ago. So I always say, as long as you're listening to it, I don't care how you get it. I think the standard thing would say would be go buy the record. But as long as people dig it, as long as you're listening to it, come see a show, you know, when it opens up, stay healthy out there. And honestly, this has been one of the most fun times I've had on a podcast in such a long time. So thank you so much for having me, man. I've enjoyed it. The conversation's great. The questions have been phenomenal. So, Well, thank you. We try to do our best to make it a different, deeper experience. This is not a radio interview where you walk in and they don't know your work, man. We, we, we don't take people that we don't like on the show. We don't. I appreciate that very much. We like you, Ross Cooper. We like your work and we hope you do it for a long time. I got to thank DJ Wyatt Schmidt, our sound engineer in the sound booth. You're the best. And you can listen to him on a bunch of streaming media. Uh, he's doing a lot of live performances on the various platforms that are out there. So please do listen to him. And MC Owen, our social media director. Thank you to my newest fan, Al Timpson. Thanks for following us on Spotify, Al. We love all our fans. Please spread the news that we want more subscribers on Spotify and Apple. So tell your friends about how great this show was and uh, please share it on your social media. And please follow us on social media. We're posting several things every day on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Backstory Song. Thank you very much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.